Good morning. It is great to have you here. Hey, as you know, we're looking at the Old Testament story of Jonah, and this is perhaps one of the most well-known stories of the Bible, and it's also one of the most debated stories of the Bible, primarily around its scientific and, and historical accuracy in terms of the Bible. But it does beg the question as we read a story like Jonah, and is that is, can postmodern people believe that a large fish literally swallowed a man whole for three days and then later vomited him onto shore? Is that in our scientific world, is that really plausible? Well, let's begin by reading the, the story from the, the narrative scripture, and I'm going to ask Alan if he would come and read it for us. Uh, this morning I'm reading from uh, the first chapter of Jonah. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you be asleep at a time like this? He shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will... Pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us? They demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin. 
And don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea. And the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power. And they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alan. As we look at this story today, we're going to break it up into two parts. And the first part is the Jonah's adventure and then what transpired that he ends up at this particular point in the, in the belly of a great fish. And then we're going to move in the last little portion to look at what we may call the, the Jonah syndrome in terms of its application for us. And why would a person like Jonah be so hesitant to kind of go and declare the message that God had given to him? The story unfolds as God coming to Jonah and giving him a directive. And it tells us in the opening verse, Jonah, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh. And I want you to preach against it because its wickedness has come upon me. And when you hear from God, and sometimes you will, sometimes it's just three little words. Three little words that can change your life. Go to Nineveh. It's very striking how this expressed, not go to Nineveh and preach to it, but rather go to Nineveh and tell them face to face that they're facing judgment. And that's kind of a daunting task. I'm sure Jonah in his mind thought, well, can I do that from a distance? Couldn't we just buy a a Facebook ad? Couldn't we just send out an amber alert on everyone's phone? Of course, if you're on the Rogers network, you would never get it. Or a, could we not create a TikTok video or something? Now, as I began to think about this, I thought, well, what might be kind of a a current analogy with regards to why Jonah might be so hesitant? As many of you know, my daughter-in-law is from Ukraine. Her parents live there currently, so does her brother. And I thought, this might be very much like God asking someone from Ukraine who lives in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine to go to Russian President Putin and to tell him that God loves him and that everything would be forgiven if he would repent and change his ways. Because I'm sure many of them would feel thought in terms of children being killed, brothers being enslaved, So many women and children being displaced, cities leveled, sisters being brutalized. That would be a big ask for any Ukrainian to go and to declare that message. What was Jonah's response? And we have to understand in terms of his response by by looking at a map to understand where, where Nineveh is in respect to Israel. 
And, and so down where you see that little A on the map there, that's Jerusalem. And, and there is jo, Joppa on the, on the seashore. And essentially, God is saying, I want you to go, and I want you to go up into the Assyria district to the city of Nineveh. And that would be, comparatively speaking today, on the Iran-Iraq border. Now, Jonah does arise in response to God's directive. He does leave home, but not for Nineveh. He goes down to Joppa, and there he goes to Tarshish. And it's not just some random geographical place. This is the westernmost town in the known world at the time. And to reach this destination, it would take approximately a year and a half. It's literally as if Jonah was going as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can. And he begins to, in his mind, run away from God. And he thought, as perhaps every one of us have thought on a tale, I can run away from God. No one will ever know. And maybe that's where you are right now. I think, Teresa, what a foolish thing to do. Why would we ever think to do something that foolish, to somehow think that we could run away from God? See, one of the things about disobedience one of the things about sin is that it requires the illusion that we'll never get caught. It's kind of like a football player, kind of struggling in his classwork, and he's sitting beside the smartest kid in the class. And the professor, after marking the exam, figures the football player must have cheated because he's sitting beside the smartest kid. So the professor confronts him and said to him, you know, you... Both got the exact same score in the test and just got one question wrong. Football player chimes up and says, well, that could have just been a coincidence. But the prof doesn't take that and says, yeah, but you both got the same question wrong. The football player says, oh, well, that could have just been a coincidence. The prof says, but the best student's paper said, I don't know the answer to the question and your paper says, I don't know the answer either. <laughs> we all do this. People do it all the time. I think it happens to everyone in this room. And it may happen like this. I know God is asking me to go to Nineveh. I know that God wants me to confront that person, have a conversation about the truth. But that would be hard. That would be unpleasant. And I don't want to face the pain, so I just go to Tarshish. It might be humbling. It might be difficult. It might be scary. See, Nineveh was not in Jonah's comfort zone. Nineveh is the place or the situation God calls you to where you don't want to go. Nineveh is fear. And what do you do? When God kind of taps you on the shoulder and says, go to Nineveh, go to the place that you don't want to go. Because there'll come a time in your spiritual journey where God will say that to you. The story goes on to tell us that, the, that God sent a violent storm on, on the sea and, and, and the, such that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid, and they cried out, tells us to each their own God. 
And then they began to hurl cargo into the sea to be able to lighten the ship. These professional sailors were well acquainted with storms at sea, but they knew that this was no natural storm. In fact, it was supernatural in origin. So they cried out to their pagan gods for help, and they throw cargo out. They don't panic easy, but they panic now, and they're praying. And while this is going on, where is Jonah? He's down in the hold, sound asleep. And how could he sleep at a time like this? And the captain was stunned by this. And he says to Jonah, how can you sleep? I love the old King James version of this. It says, what meanest thou, O sleeper? That's what the captain says to Jonah. What were you thinking? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And they point to Jonah. And they look at him and said, hey, what's your story? And Jonah responds and says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them. And they asked him, what have you done? The text tells us, it was revealed to them, that he is running away from God. And the sea keeps getting worse and it keeps getting rougher. And the sailors asked Jonah, what should we do to make the sea calm down? Jonah says, now imagine him saying this. Pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And now for the first time, Jonah says, I'm not going to run from God anymore. God, whatever it takes, whatever the cost is, I'm not going to run from you anymore. Instead, the Bible tells us these men did all that they could. They're rowing hard. They're trying hard to save him. And they care more about Jonah than he did about the residents of Nineveh. But their rowing didn't work. They prayed to God and they followed Jonah's instructions and they threw him into the sea. And immediately, the raging waves fell to serenity. Kind of like the waves at the wave pool at West Edmonton Mall when the motors are turned off. Instant calm. And these pagan sailors respond to this calm by worshiping God, making thanks offering to him, pledging their lives in gratitude for his saving grace. Kind of an interesting twist that Jonah wouldn't go to Nineveh to prophesy to the Gentiles there, but through his own choices by his attempt to escape, he put himself in a situation where the Gentile sailors put their faith in the one true God because of Jonah's weak, brief, and half-hearted witness under distress. And the chapter concludes, Jonah is sinking in the sea, but the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Now, notice here, it does not say God created a huge fish. The word translated literally means assigned or provided, or appointed. It's used four times in the book Jonah. It's a governing word. It's what a king would do if he was going to an appoint an ambassador or a messenger or someone, something. And so, instead of a person, God uses a fish. And if we could kind of maybe kind of imagine what kind of conversation might take place between God and a fish? It would be like God saying, hey, fish, and the fish saying, yes, God, I want you to be an Uber driver and go pick up Jonah. 
And then directions will be given on a need-to-know basis. Now, you have to remember, this is important. Swallow, don't chew. <laughs> and then I'll tell you where to drop them off. And to which the, the fish would say, oh, okay, I'll do that. Kind of an odd story. Now, I, I know that people have debated the scientific accuracy of this book and have questioned whether there really is an animal large enough to be able to swallow a person whole and to keep them there for three days. Now, there has been projections that, that a whale shark that has enormous mouth, five to eight feet wide, and, and that could be wide enough to be able to, you know, consume any profit, no matter how fully he was of himself he was. And these sea creatures have four to six compartments in their stomach, which would be plenty enough, big enough for any person to live in. It tells us that Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Does that kind of strike anything as rather unusual? Let me pause here and return to the question we looked at the very, that I proposed at the very beginning. Because it's a serious question. Because of the nature of this story, thoughtful people will say, I don't know if it's okay to say this in a church or not, but to be truthful, the idea of a fish swallowing a guy and having that guy live inside him for a while is kind of hard to believe. And so when people begin to wonder whether the Bible is really worth following, they, they, they think, you know, there, there's no scientific proof to these kind of stories. Now, what we do know is we do know from other places in Scripture that Jonah is an historical person. It tells us this in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, indicates his name, and who's the son of. So we know that he's a historical person. We also know by history, that Nineveh is an historical city, and it can be traced back to the 8th century B.C. And we also know that Jesus himself understood the message of Jonah, because it tells us in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees and the scribes had asked Jesus if he would give, him, give them a sign of his power, to which he said, he answered, only an evil, faithless nation would ask for further proof. And none will be given except what happened to Jonah the prophet. This is Jesus' words. For as Jonah was in the great fish for three days and three nights, so I, the Messiah, shall be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh shall arise against this nation at the judgment and condemn you. For when Jonah preached to them, they repented. And turn to God from all their evil ways. And now one greater than Jonah is here. And you refuse to believe in him. So recognize that the Jesus understood and pointed to the historical accuracy of the story of Jonah. So where does the impossibility lie? It doesn't lie with the fish. It lies in the fact that a human being could be kept alive in such an oxygen-deprived, acidic environment as a belly for 72 hours. That's where the miracle lies. Sometimes we get caught up in understanding, trying to figure out what genre this should be in or, or questioning with regards to the literalness of the story. 
But the real point becomes, the real question is, are miracles possible? At the heart of our Christian faith is his claim that there is a God. He's an all-powerful God, and he raised Jesus from the dead. And this happened in history. God revealed himself uniquely in the Bible. So to God, nothing is impossible. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, I think he could keep a guy in storage in a fish for a few days. At the end of the day, we don't need to get hung up about genre or what kind of fish it was, those kind of details. Because it really points to something bigger, that God is up to something great. Let's remember at the end of the day, the fish is not the hero of the story. It's only mentioned three times in the 48 verses. The fish is merely a prop. It tells us in the next chapter that Jonah prays and God hears and Jonah gets delivered. And it's kind of an odd book because what happens kind of at the end of the next chapter is kind of so goofy, so slapstick. We wouldn't mention it except that it's in the Bible. So we have to talk about it. God, Jonah gets delivered on the third day. Now, the third day is a big day in Bible stories. In the Old Testament, often when, when there's dramatic rescue on the part of God, it would come on the third day. So a reader might expect in a normal Bible story that, that Jonah is going to get some dramatic rescue event, a visitation from the angel Gabriel to fly home on a chariot of fire get beamed up through prayer, something like that. But that's not how it works, not in this story. And it tells us in the end of chapter 2, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Is it just me or is that a little more detailed than we really want when we read this story? It's kind of like the fifth grade version of the story because it's an important word when you're doing ministry with fifth graders. And one would think, you know, why wouldn't the English translators of the Bible choose a more dignified, churchier word than vomit? The writer wants to make sure the reader gets this, that Jonah doesn't get dropped off by an angel. Okay? Let's face it. The whale had a protein spill, tossed his cookies, lost his lunch, lost a, launched a food shuttle, yawned in technicolor, okay? And I'm sure the fishers probably thought to himself, that tasted better going down than coming up. <laughs> well, after this three-day combination underwater cruise prayer retreat, <laughs> Jonah was ready to fulfill his vow to be God's prophet. And so the fish vomited him up from the beach of Joppa. What a way to deliver a distinguished prophet to his destination. But the story doesn't end there. It's a fabulous story. But I want to interject because we're going to do it a, a family thing this week and this month. And so I, I just think of yourselves as kind of being at camp, would you? Just kind of project yourself and be. So you're around at camp, and so there's some actions. So I, I know I'm imposing on you, but would you stand with me on this particular point? Okay, stand with me. Okay, and, and we're going to do some actions. And, and so if someone asks you what happens in the first chapter of Jonah, you're going to be able to tell them. Okay, so that's the objective here. So I'm going to say it slowly, and, and then we're going to give you an opportunity to kind of practice with me. Okay, here it is. God says go, 
Jonah says no. God says blow. Jonah says so. Captain says bro. Jonah says throw. Sailors say whoa. Okay? Okay? So we're going to work on it. This way you'll be able to kind of tell, hey, this is what happened in chapter 1. Okay. So God says go. Jonah says God says blow. Jonah says so. The captain says bro. Jonah says and the sailors say Okay, let's make sure we got this down. One more time. God says, no. Jonah says, no. God says, no. Jonah says, no. Captain says, no. Jonah says, no. and, the, and the sailors say, no. okay, you guys did a great job. Sit down. Yeah, great job. That's a, a nutshell of what happens in chapter one. After being hurled very unceremoniously from the belly of the fish, Jonah does indeed go to Nineveh, and he warns them and tells them the story of God's love and mercy. And as a result of their repentance, God chooses not to punish them. And do you know, you would think maybe, maybe Jonah would be happy. But he is, he is not a happy camper. You know, it's interesting Jesus tells a, a, a story in the New Testament about the story of a prodigal son, but there's a focus in there on the reaction of the older brother to the younger brother coming home. And Marilyn, would you come and read for us the New Testament portion from Luke chapter 15? Meanwhile, the older brother was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father looked at him and said, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. You have to celebrate, we have to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Thanks, Marlon. The text tells us as we move into the third chapter, verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. They repented. They had a change of heart. They recognized the, the trajectory of their life, and they recognized that God was real, 
And so they turn, then they turn towards God. And, and one might think that that's great news. Don't we want to celebrate that? Don't we want to have them come and tell their story about how their life has been transformed? But that's not Jonah's response. And it tells us that he is royally ripped in the chapter 4. He opens up. And this is what he says in verse 3. That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew you would do that. That's the reason why I was going the other direction. Because I knew if I went to them and said, you need to, be, you need to repent, God, you are going to take your judgment off them, and they deserve all of your judgment. See, Jonah stands in a long tradition. He is representative of a class of people that we meet on the pages of Scripture, in the drama of life, and in the pews and chairs of churches. He is a refuser of festivities. He misses the grace of God and lets bitterness take root. And like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, he won't join the party. He won't live in grace. God is involved in an extravagant, surprising, mercy-drenched business, seeking and saving those who are lost, throwing feasts once they're found. But Jonah and his type are sitting on the sidelines and they sulk about how God, how hard God is on them and how soft he is on everyone else. They stew about things taken away, things, things they never had, things that they never wanted others to have, but God gives to them without measure. You know, Mark Buchanan talks about people who are the refuser of festivities, people who miss, up, who miss out on grace. And he calls it the Jonas Syndrome. And he has quite a lengthy list, but there were three in particular on this list that had a little bit of an ouch factor for me, and, and perhaps they can, might resonate in the same way with you. The Jonas Syndrome, one of the characteristics of, of people who are the refusers of festivities is you want to see judgment, vengeance really, for those who you don't like. Secondly, you gladly receive God's grace. You like to soak it up, but you don't extend it to others or celebrate when God extends it to you. God, give me your grace but I'm not so sure I want your grace to be extended to others. Third one, your loyalty is to your own kind or to your cherished traditions rather than to the kingdom of God. I don't know about for you, but that's an ouch for me. You know, for a long time, when preachers spoke about the story of Jonah, their central point was usually trying to convince people that there was kind of a, a sea beast of some form that could swallow a person whole. Or to kind of be able to demonstrate that a person could live in the belly of a fish for three days and still walk away. But that really isn't the main point of the story. The story really gets at the issue of 
Jonah's attitude towards the Ninevites. So, a couple of questions for you to ponder. If you are brave enough to be able to be self-aware and to be honest with other people, maybe you would have a conversation with someone else. And the question would be this. Who are the Ninevites for you? In other words, which people group, which segment of society do you find yourself casting despairing remarks? That would take a little bit of disclosing that to another person would take a whole lot of courage because we'd have to come to admit to ourselves which people group that we would might tempted, either we would either audibly or just within ourselves think or say about another group of people. Perhaps mining it down just a little bit further. Is there any place or situation that God is calling you to go to Nineveh. We're the Ninevites, but what is the place or situation that God might be, tempted, be calling you and say, go to Nineveh? Would you join with me in prayer? Our gracious God, Thank you for the sadness and the celebration of this story. The sadness informs our heart of the temptation to run from you. And the celebration of the story gives us hope that in all our proneness to wonder, there is hope for us because there is grace that is greater. Our Heavenly Father, you know the truth about us. You know that we are runners that we all have a lot of Jonah in us. We get scared. We want what we want. And we shut the awareness of you out of our thoughts. In our feeble ways, we try to flee from your presence. And yet always, God, the good news is that you are at work in ways that we could not plan or even imagine. We want to pray especially for the spiritual struggle that is going on in the hearts in this room for women and men who know some area, some relationship, some behavior, some secret, where they have been running the other way, and maybe for a long time. And you come and just say, run to me. Just come on home. Would you help each of us to stop running away? Help us to know what a good, loving, and great God you are. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.